Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Oh, Gavin, I definitely think of you like a Beatle. You're like Pete Best, the guy they fired for being an even worse drummer than Ringo. Ass. The following podcast contains... Your use of language has altered since our arrival. It is currently laced with, shall I say, more colorful metaphors. Double dumbass on you, and so forth. You mean the profanity? Yes. That's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When even your imaginary friends think your idea is really fucking stupid, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 290, That Loser Who Shot John Lennon, edition of the show, where we talk about the pathetic little douche that shot John Lennon 40 years ago this week. Stay tuned. The What the Hell You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Todd Rundgren, who wants you to know he had nothing to do with this shit. Todd Rundgren admits he had some words with John Lennon, but certainly didn't want any harm to come to John. The actions of one loser dipshit do not reflect on Todd Rundgren, and Todd Rundgren disavows any use of violence against any members of the Beatles, even Paul, who, let's face it, has been kind of a dick. Todd Rundgren regrets any misunderstanding that any fan, particularly a lame-ass fuck like this guy, who did that to John, would infer wrongly that Todd Rundgren wishes any ill to any Beatle, alive or otherwise. Thank you for listening to Todd Rundgren, whom up until this moment, most of you have never heard of. on the line, Howard. You have got to say what we know in the booth. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, Dead on arrival. Hard to go back to the game after that news flash, which in duty found we had to take. Frank. Indeed it is. Three seconds remain. I've mentioned before I did not grow up in a Beatles home. My mom was and is all about that. I always found this a bit odd as my mom was coming into her teens in the middle of Beatlemania, but looking back on it now, I can understand. First of all, Elvis was a southern boy, and that mattered a lot in a small Tennessee town during the early 60s. And second, the Beatles were these skinny, pale, long-haired, girly boys, and Elvis was, at the time, a solid slab of American man. That man made women's yoo-hoos ha-hum. It's your mom, dude. Look, I'm an adult. I can accept the fact that my mother was a sexual being and that if given the chance, she would have at least entertained the notion of letting the king give her his hunka hunka burning love. David. So while I certainly knew of the Beatles growing up in as much as any chubby, nerdy, not particularly musically inclined 11-year-old knew of such things, they weren't important in our home, which is why on December 8th, 1980, 
It was just another day in our house. So while other moms around the world were sobbing and playing old Beatles albums and all of my peers were asking, Why is mom crying? It all just kind of slipped by in my house. That's probably because my parents were still high on that sweet, sweet Reagan mojo after his election a month earlier. I bring this up because the 40th anniversary of the murder of John Lennon is this week, and I'm not about to let the chance for clicks and downloads to pass by this low-rated podcast. Oh, that's mighty noble of you. Now, a lot of shows will be concentrated on the life of John Lennon or how his death shook our culture and really set the tone for the 80s. I'm going to go a different route. I'm going to talk about what a fucking loser Mark David Chapman, the moron who murdered John Lennon, was and is. We are not a true crime podcast, though admittedly we're starting to look kind of like one, so I'm not going to focus on Chapman's big day. I'm going to show you how generally pathetic and shitty this little man was. In the annals of small people killing celebrities, Mark David Chapman is perhaps the most insignificant turd of them all. So, let's find out why, shall we? Paraphrase the bard, some men are born pathetic, sniveling losers, some men become pathetic, sniveling losers over time, and some have pathetic, sniveling loserdom thrust upon them. Mark David Chapman's only real accomplishment in life was achieving all three. He's got that going for him. Born May 10th, 1955 in Fort Worth, Texas to an abusive father and an o- an occlorianly overprotective mother, You know, i got to back up here. The thing about Mark David Chapman is you can't actually believe anything he tells you about his family life. So we only have his word to go on about his father, David Chapman, who other people remembered as actually kind of a great guy. I couldn't find anything to corroborate him being abusive, and Chapman's sister doesn't talk about anything, really, and I don't blame her. So take what I said about Daddy Chapman with a huge chunk of salt. What a stone-cold fact is that Mark was a mommy's boy in the worst connotation of that phrase, and that is very much verified. Diane Chapman doted on her baby boy with a kind of destructive mothering that pretty much guarantees you're going to grow up to kill someone. She constantly told young Mark that he was destined for greatness and someday he would be the most important person in the world. Which is not necessarily a bad thing to tell your kids. I wish my mom would have said that at least once. And uh, the problem was Diane constantly told Mark how incredibly special he was, despite the fact that even as a child, Mark David Chapman was, uh, your average at best. Perhaps Mark knew this because he would in later years accuse his mother of not loving him enough. What little bitch. Like many children, Mark had an active fantasy life as a child. Well, not like most kids who have an imaginary friend or two or perhaps like to pretend they're on the crew of the Starship Enterprise and would be the only surviving red shirt on the landing party. Not Mark. He had the little people. As quoted from Murderpedia, quote, I like to fantasize that I was a king, and I had all these little people living around me that lived in the walls, and that I was their hero, and was in the paper every day, and I was on TV every day, their TV, and that I was important. They all kind of worshipped me, you know? It was like I could do no wrong, and sometimes I'd get mad, and I'd blow up some of them. I'd have this push-button thing part of the sofa, and I'd get mad, and I'd blow out part of the wall, and a lot of them would die. But the people would forgive me for that, and you know, everything got back to normal. That's just a fantasy I had for many years. Oh, that is... And look, a lot of kids, including me, had violent elements in their fantasy play, and... 
even cast themselves in heroic roles during their fantasies. But Chapman's fantasy friends were described less as imaginary friends and more like narcissistic delusions where Mark was god and king over the little people. They weren't playmates. They were worshippers and subjects to a cruel despot who destroyed them on a whim. You should focus on Chapman's desperate need to be important, even as a child, because it is kind of the nougat-filled center of the Tootsie Roll turd treat that is Mark David Chapman. By his account, he was tormented in school because I wasn't a good athlete, claiming he was brutally bullied and bullied constantly. People who knew him at the time those who could recall him, claimed that he was bullied pretty much about the same as everyone else was. Even Chapman's own recollections of the torment cap off with a few bumps in the hallway and someone stole his hat. Give the man his hat. Which caused Mark to make wanted posters of his hat thief and post them all over the neighborhood. I thought, oh, well, this will teach him. Or then there was the time he wanted to learn karate and call the dojo, only to have his bully hear his message on the phone and then go out and beat him up again. But by high school, Chapman decided he was going to get into drugs and take up the burgeoning hippie lifestyle. He would skip class, drop acid, which you might think would give him some cool kid cachet, but we're talking about Mark David Chapman here. I mean, yeah, he's kind of a loser. He dabbled in being a runaway, spending a couple of weeks on the streets of Atlanta before slinking home, and one time he ran away to the land of the hippies. California, eh? Oh, no, that would be way too scary. He went to Miami where he fell in with some beach bums he thought were hippies who stole his money and left him stranded in Florida. And I know all the articles about Chapman like to talk about his love for music, and particularly the Beatles. And this makes sense, I guess, but whenever I read them, I just see a pretty average teenager with a slight musical bit and enough cash to afford some good albums. Chapman played guitar, no word on how well, but since we're talking about Mark David Chapman, we could probably assume he was slightly below average. He was briefly in a band in high school and later on in his 20s played in church groups, but from what I could tell, his love of music was like everything else in his life. Average. The only reason people really like to bring it up is, you know, him murdering John Lennon. If I'd murdered Robert Halford from Judas Priest, people could have made the same inference about me based on my teenage record collection. Judas Priest, man! This isn't to say Chapman wasn't big into the Beatles or later Todd Rundgren. It's more saying that it isn't that weird that he was. I mentioned a second or two ago that Chapman played in church groups because after his stint pretending to be a hippie and dropping acid, he found religion and became a Jesus freak. Of course he did. From a 2008 article in New York Magazine, quote, Chapman had become deeply involved with Christianity in his last two years of high school, carrying around his own personal Bible and making entries in a Jesus notebook. And he concluded his letters to me with a quote from the Bible or a music lyric. He met this woman who changed his life. He was madly in love with Jessica, and she kind of straightened him around. She made him a Christian. Under under her influence, he enrolled in Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, but he couldn't hack it. (laughs) I'm shocked. Either at college, where he flunked out after a semester, or with the girl who soon left him. He was a real bright kid who just didn't have the discipline. And he was in love with his woman, but he became unglued when he couldn't cut it in school and the girl told him to pack off, unquote. Based on the recollections of people who knew him in his church groups and his subsequent time working for the YMCA, 
the Jesus-y side of the YMCA, not the village people sucking dick in the shower side of it. He was just as insufferable in church as he was everywhere else in life. Prone to temper tantrums when people didn't pay enough attention to him and constantly trying to impose his profoundly mediocre religious songs, all just bad knockoffs of light folk songs with a few chord changes and some lyrics about the Lord inserted in the services. He reportedly stormed out of service one evening because his song was cut from the service that night for time. I hate cursive and I hate all of you! And yet somehow, he managed to find something like a calling through the church. Not Jesus, but working with kids. Yeah, there was actually one thing Mark was good at. Working with children. That's probably because he was such a profoundly immature little shit himself. That was just me. He found a job working at a ca- as a camp counselor for a YMCA summer camp and was actually well-liked by the kids who nicknamed him Nemo. Of course, Mark being a petty little shit read somewhere that Nemo meant nobody in Latin and then got all pissy about it, never once fucking thinking that where the fuck were a bunch of summer cap kids in goddamn Georgia in the 1970s going to learn that. I mean, I hadn't heard about it until I learned it in this context, and I'm a long way from a 10-year-old in 1970s Georgia. God, I hate this petty little turd nugget. According to the man who killed John Lennon by Fred McGonagall, quote, Those who knew him in the caring professions unanimously called him an outstanding worker. As a teenage YMCA summer camp counselor, he was idolized by the youngsters. We made him an assistant director of the summer camp because he had real leadership qualities, said Tony Adams, who was the executive director of the YMCA branch. If ever there was a person who had the potential for doing good, it was Mark. Later, he was similarly successful with Vietnamese refugees at a resettlement camp, especially with the children, a colleague recalled. He was like the Pied Piper. He became the director's right-hand man, accompanying to meetings with government officials. President Gerald Ford shook his hand, unquote. Chapman even went overseas for the YMCA, serving in Lebanon. Of course, in typical Chapman fashion, this was in 1975, and promptly the Lebanon Civil War popped off while he was there. After he was evacuated from Lebanon, he worked in Fort Chaffee, Arkansas, helping resettle Vietnamese refugees, where once again it was a huge hit with both the refugees and his co-workers. And it seemed at long last that Mark David Chapman had found his calling. Until the program ended, Mark found himself back in Georgia for a second go at college, where he fucked up, dropped out, confessed he cheated on his chase girlfriend who dumped his ass, and Mark went back to work at the Y summer camp until he got into a pissing match with the swim director and quit in a whiny ass huff. That sounds about right. So after failing at pretty much everything because he wasn't the very best at it, or at least no one would recognize his genius at everything, Mark David Chapman took his life savings, some 1200 bucks, and bought two tickets to paradise. Well, actually, it was just the one ticket because, you know, no one loved him, and he was a big pussy dumb shit, and flew to Hawaii where Mark David Chapman planned to kill himself. He hit Oahu, spent some time on the beach, took in a luau, bought himself some Hawaiian shirts because, you know, when else was he going to get to fucking Hawaii because he was going to kill himself? So you got to make sure to see Diamond Head. But, you know, once he got there, Jesus, I fucking hate this guy. Let me quote again from McGonagall, quote, he called Jessica, his ex-fiance. He told her he had planned his death, but had regained his desire to live. He pleaded with her to tell him she still loved him and he should come home. 
Jessica, fearing she would be responsible for his suicide, told him, just come home. He bought another one-way ticket, this time to Atlanta, only to discover Jessica had acted out of pity. He got into an argument with his parents and moved briefly into a hotel. Then he used the last of his savings for his third one-way ticket, this time to Hawaii. It was May of 1977, unquote. Spending a few days at the Y and drinking up most of the rest of his money, Mark stopped at a hardware store, picked up a length of vacuum cleaner hose, and drove a rental car out to a deserted beach. He slipped the hose into the tailpipe, ran the other end into the window, put a Todd Rundgren 8-track cassette in the deck. I don't know, but I just need to believe that it was cliche off of Faithful. So Because everything that he's doing is very fucking cliche. But you know, we are talking about Mark David Chapman, so... Couldn't even do that right. He passed out, the cheap hose melted in the tailpipe, and was found the next day by a fisherman. After failing at something, yet again, he finally checked himself into Castle Memorial Hospital for the mental health treatment he so desperately needed. And you know what? A week later, he felt just spiffy. He was discharged from the mental hospital. He made such a good impression on the doctors and staff of said mental hospital, where he was just a patient. A short while later, he was hired at that mental hospital as a maintenance man. Quote, his supervisor would later tell reporters he was delightful to work with. He tried to please us so. He was so sympathetic to the old people. He would play them Hawaiian songs on his guitar and pay attention to them when nobody else would. Some of them hadn't spoken to anybody in years, but they started again when Mark showed them some attention. He socialized with the doctors and nurses who treated him as a colleague. He found a place to live with a Presbyterian minister, and by the spring of 78, he could once more look at himself as a success, not a failure. Unquote. I find that hard to believe. And for a while, Mark was normal. Even happy. He had a nice job, stability, people liked him, even met a woman. While planning her trip to Asia, he met a travel agent named Gloria Abe, and the two hit it off. When he returned from his trip, the two began seriously dating, and in 1979, they were married. Everything was looking up for Mark. For the first time in his life, according to Mark, he was happy. But hey, again, who are we talking about here? But then he fucked it up. Of course he did. He managed to get himself a promotion at the hospital making more money, but he hated the new job. So he fucked around, fucked up, and got fired. He was rehired, got into a fight with a nurse, and got fired again. He got into a fight with Gloria's boss at the travel agency and made her quit to find another job. He found himself working as a security guard in a luxury building and began drinking heavily. Which normally, I admire in someone, but not this time, because fuck this guy. That's when he decided to get into art collecting, despite being broke and not knowing shit about art. He bought a cheap Salvador Dali, cheap by art standards, cost him 2500 bucks, sold it at a loss, then bought a $7,500 Norman Rockwell with mostly borrowed money, which he would later sell at a loss. What the fucking idiot. Not to worry, however, because Mark had a plan to fix it, and to do so, he called upon his oldest and most trusted advisors, the people he'd known his entire life and was certain could help. He called upon the little people from his childhood. Not sure I was expecting that. 
The little people, now a fully functional and independent democracy, complete with government officials, diplomats, and I guess financial experts, appeared to Mark, and if you were not expecting on him calling on them, you will be even more surprised to find out that after meeting with the little people and their financial planners and wealth management specialists, they got Mark on a budget, put together a savings plan, and in a few short months... Okay, you are totally making this up. ...had his debts paid off and Mark was on sound financial footing once again. Okay, you are totally making this up. I am not. He told this to his wife and later to his shrinks. I don't know, maybe Mark was making it up. Or one could say that the dairy product had officially slipped off his flat-baked unleavened bread product. More from a gunnical quote. But still, Mark felt unbearable pressure. Pressure he couldn't divine. His obsessions changed even more rapidly. He got rid of his records. Then scoured record stores to replace them. Then sold his new collection. He bought new speakers for his stereo. Then broke his turntable and smashed it to pieces. After watching the movie Network, he got rid of his TV set. He made loyal Gloria's life miserable. The only place you could go for privacy was the bathroom. And so often at night, I'd go in there and lock the door and just cry. He bought two copies of The Catcher in the Rye and made Gloria read one. He talked of changing his name to Holden Caulfield and even wrote the Hawaii Attorney General to ask about the procedure. He brought home books from the library on one subject after another. One of them was John Lennon, One Day at a Time by Anthony Fawcett. In it, he read about John Lennon's life in New York. He was furious. He was angry that Lennon would preach love and peace but yet have millions. He began talking of going to New York. Unquote. <sighs> We're at the point where I'm forced to talk about Catcher in the Rye. I do not want to do this because what can I say that hasn't already been said repeatedly? Let me summarize Chapman and Catcher. Chapman was a whiny, pathetic moron and Catcher in the Rye is a vastly overrated book by every measure that appeals to a certain class of whiny, pathetic morons like Mark David Chapman. I read or heard somewhere along the line in my life someone say there are books that people read at just the right point in their lives and it changes them forever. And among those books are the Bible, Atlas Shrugged, and Catcher in the Rye. This is because the people who become obsessed by these books are universally... You're all a bunch of fucking assholes. Mark David Chapman is just another fucking asshole. It isn't the book. These people were already fucking assholes. So it was decided by Mark that John Lennon had to die for reasons. None of them good reasons. All of them revolved around Mark David Chapman being a pathetic little man baby. But you know what? He didn't take this advice lightly or choose this on his own. No, he conferred with his little people advisors who, according to Chapman, told him, Please, think of your wife. Please, Mr. President, think of your mother. Think of yourself. He replied that his mind was made up. Their reaction was silence. Then... One by one, beginning with his defense minister, the little people rose from their seats and walked from the secret chamber inside the mysterious mind of Mark David Chapman, unquote. So it was that this pussy-ass loser, Todd Rundgren superfan, oh yeah, I haven't even talked about that shit, but trust me, he was a huge Rundgren head. He quit his job as a security guard, bought a gun, booked a flight to New York City using money borrowed from his father-in-law, naturally, and set off to kill John fucking Lennon. Upon arrival in New York, he tours it around, 
took in a bunch of Broadway shows, saw the lights of Times Square, and totally failed to fucking do what he went to New York to do. Because again, this guy is just an utter piece of garbage that can't do anything right on the first try, and usually the third. He flew back to Hawaii, told his wife that he was all better now, then tried to put his life back together by calling in bomb threats to his former employer and harassing the Harry Krishnas. What a loser. This lasted a couple of weeks until Chapman, after borrowing yet more money, flew back to New York and into the pages of history when he finally pulled his gun on John Lennon outside the Dakota December 8th, 1980, and fired five times, hitting and killing Lennon in cold blood. Mark David Chapman had finally become a somebody instead of a lame-ass Nemo. I'm going to let Mark speak for himself from a 2000. September 2000 BBC article, and I'm going to piece together several quotes into what can best be described as a dramatic narrative. Quote, I don't know exactly what happened. I guess to me, John Lennon had become a picture on an album cover. When I saw him that time, a voice in my head like a child's voice just said, do it, do it, do it. I aimed at his back and pulled the trigger five times and all hell just broke loose in my mind, unquote. Over the years, Mark has asked for parole, most recently in August of this year. He's again found God, apologized for his crimes, and said that John Lennon himself would want to let him out. I think he would be a liberal. I think he would care, unquote. As for what he would do if he ever did receive parole, which will not happen, not as long as Yoko Ono is alive, quote, I don't know. I don't know how easy that would be, but I'd just try to lead an ordinary life again. Stay out of the papers. There's not many places left to go once you've killed someone like John Lennon, unquote. And asked why he did it, he said, "Uh, I just sought a way to be someone I wasn't. To be loved. I fucking hate this guy so much! I mean, I guess there's an argument to be made that Chapman was mentally ill and maybe that he should have elicited some compassion, but honestly, I don't believe he was crazy. I believe he's a whiny little shit of a man who went through life throwing every good thing that happened away because it wasn't exactly what he wanted. He moped around after his first girlfriend, even after he married his wife, his wife, who is still with him to this day. He had a real chance of a career in the, y- in the YMCA, but he quit that because of petty fights with co-workers and over the mildest disagreement. He tried his hand at acting and music in Chicago, but quit because it was, oh, it was too hard. He alienated family, abandoned friends, and lived his life on the generosity of others, all the while judging them for not living up to his moral standards. That isn't crazy. That's an asshole. And yeah. John Lennon was his own kind of asshole and more than a bit hypocritical, but to be gunned down by such a pathetic little skid mark of a man that New York Magazine said of him, failure was attached to him like an odor. But Mark David Chapman reeked of failure, not because he couldn't do anything, but because nothing was ever good enough for Mark David Chapman. And for someone like him to kill John fucking Lennon, well, not even John Lennon could imagine that. (laughs) That is it for our show this week. You know, I've talked about a lot of losers on this show. I mean, I mention Gavin every week, but even Gavin is fucking a superhero compared to this dick weasel. And look, I know I have a couple of fans out there, but if any of you flip out after reading some shitty fucking cliche novel and come at me, you best not miss 
because I will scream and shit all over both of us in terror. You've been warned. Speaking of warned, rate and review the show wherever you get your pods so other people can be warned of your questionable taste in podcast. Follow the show on Twitter at the hell underscore podcast or the show name on Facebook for all my questionable thoughts on any number of things. Hey, it's Christmas season, so why not give the gift of supporting a low-rated podcast at patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. You get all the shows ad-free and early, and for a few dollars more, you'll get some cool swag which will not be at your door in time for Christmas, just like that time your dad couldn't get that Cabbage Patch doll for you. All of the shows are at whatthehellpodcast.com, and we are a proud member of Seltzer King's Podcast Networks, the show for angry old men talking about Todd Rundgren and 90s Nickelodeon stars. So for me, Dave, honestly, Imagine isn't even that great of a song, Bledsoe. Producer, Todd Rundgren is an overlooked musical genius. Gavin, and all the fictional fifth Beatles on this show, we want to say that John Lennon is dead and we can't get Post Malone one fucking super fan. How do you like it when I rip you off, Dennis Leary? We'll see you all next week. Plastic eyeballs and spray painted veggie bowls, dog food and stalls and beefcake and pantyhose. So kill the headlights, put in a neutral stock car flaming with that loser and cruise control. Babies in Reno with her vitamin D. She got a couple of couches. I sleep on her love seat. Someone says I'm insane to complain about the shotgun waiting and the stain on my shirt. You can't believe everything that you breathe. They get a parking violation. And what the hell were you thinking? Stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What the Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.